Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. If you would turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the book of Exodus, chapter 21. Exodus, chapter 21. We have made it out of Exodus 20, by God's grace, and we look forward to continuing in our time in the book of Exodus as we come to Exodus 21. As one commentator has said, Exodus 21 and following is not necessarily a gold mine for expository preaching. You might understand why as we read it this morning. As we come to these verses, we might think, what does this have to do with me? But what's beautiful about God's word is that it is all breathed out by God. All Scripture is inspired and breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. Even Exodus 21 and even Exodus 22 and 23. So we're thankful for God's Word. So would you stand as I read Exodus 21 this morning? All 36 verses. As I come to the end, I will say, uh, as I come to the end of verse 36, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and together we will say, thanks be to God. Hear the word of the Lord. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall go out as the male, or she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not dis diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing. 
without payment of money. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her sh shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him. And he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its, owners, and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner, shall, or, and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit, and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make rest restoration." He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O oh, Father, bring to the right those who stray from the truth so that we all may unanimously serve you in holiness and righteousness all the days of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.
If you read the Word of God, and you read the Old Testament in particular, the Bible makes us ask some really important questions and also some very difficult questions. Questions like, does God command genocide? Does God give the green light for polygamy? Or, as we might ask today, does God approve of slavery? These questions and others are questions the average reader of the Old Testament will come to ask if they are reading the Bible thoughtfully. I fear the church at large has failed a generation by not adequately answering these questions and meeting them head on. When these difficult questions are posed to us and people ask us these questions, what is our response? How are we going to answer them? Are we going to run away? Or are we going to meet them head on? Perhaps the church at large has been too busy making this a happy, clappy place, a place where we try to attract young people to the church with the wiles and the entertainments of the world. We've been so desperate to make people like us that we've given them a paper-thin Christianity, a Christianity where the world will come and will begin to poke holes in their Christianity. What have we done? What have we done by not answering the difficult questions when they come to us from God's Word? We've made a generation of people who believe that they are smarter than God. They are the ones who will ask the questions of God, and God must give them an adequate response to their questions. They will be the judge. They will be the determiners of what is right and true. They become the standard of truth. And what happens when these people who claim to be smarter than God read the Old Testament? What do they say? Look at this God. He is a moral monster. No good God would say any of these things. Who would promote these things? Who would do these things? So, is God a moral monster? Does he violate morality? First, let us ask the question, whose standard of morality are we talking about? How do you come to determine what is right and wrong? How do you know what is moral and immoral? Do you get to decide for yourself? No. God is not a moral monster. God never can be a moral monster. Because God is the absolute, unchanging, pure and true standard of morality. 
He says what is right and wrong. He says what is true and what is false. He says how we are to live and not live. We are judged in light of his holiness, his righteousness, his perfection. It is not God who is the problem. It is us who are the problem. We are those who are the fallen, the thoroughly sinful human beings. We might not be as bad as we could be, but sin has infiltrated and stained every part of our being. What happens with those who come to believe that they are smarter than God? Have you ever met someone like that? And this position is no bound, is not bound to age. I've seen 12-year-olds who think that they are smarter than God, and I think I've seen people who are 70 plus think that they are smarter than God, and everyone in between. When people think that they are smarter than God, they parade their ignorance around for everyone to see and they call it intelligence. Ignorance parading around as intelligence. But this is what sin does to people. Sin makes people ignorant. They do not have knowledge. They do not have understanding. They do not see clearly because they are blinded by their sin. They sit and live and dwell in darkness. And this is the problem with our world. People are blinded and ignorant because of their sin. And people believe that they can alleviate their ignorance by just gaining more knowledge. And so they work at attaining more and more and more knowledge. But guess what? All of the knowledge that people might attain from this world through all of their effort, through all of their work, is not the knowledge that they need. The knowledge that people need is not a knowledge attained by human effort, it is a knowledge received from the divine God above. That knowledge is the knowledge that saves. That knowledge is the knowledge that gives someone a new heart. That is the knowledge. That trust not in man's endeavors, but believes in God. Those who think that they are smarter than God despise faith. They hate belief. That is the worst thing for them. How might we test this for a moment? How might we test this? How do you know, perhaps, if you are smarter than God, what place does faith have in your life? What place does belief 
in Jesus Christ have in your life? And let's even take it one step further. What place does prayer have in your life? Prayer is ultimately this display of faith in God. And it's a humbling word that we would speak to him realizing, God, we are not smarter than you. Answering the difficult questions is necessary, but it's not enough. As we come to these difficult questions that are here in God's Word and in the Old Testament, we must also show how these difficult questions bring us to Jesus and promote putting our faith and trust in Jesus. So when these difficult questions come, it's not just enough for us to be able to know the right answer, but it's also saying, here is the answer, and here is how the answer brings us to Jesus. Here is how the answer makes us put our faith and trust in Jesus. And so we come to Exodus 21, and what is known as the Book of the Covenant, which is coming directly from the lips of God. Let's remember that. This word is coming directly from God to Moses, and then it's going out to the Israelites. It's coming from God's very heart. It's coming from God's very mind. Does God know what he is doing? Does God know what his people need? And this section can be very difficult for us because on the surface, we might say, how do these things apply to me? I'm going to go out on a limb here this morning, but I'm going to guess that not many of us have oxen at home. What are we to do with a verse that says, well, if your oxen gores somebody else? How are these verses relevant to the people in the 21st century? Well, as we come to this, we realize that this is all about a relationship with God. This is all about a covenant with Him. This is all about living their lives and I think also living our lives under God's rule and God's reign and God's authority. Living our lives in such a way that we love God with all that we are and we also love our neighbor as ourself. We see here at the very beginning, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. That word rules also has this idea of judgments. So here are some certain scenarios that are going to come about in the normal course of the Israelites' life and how are they going to make judgments about what is right and what is wrong? How someone is to be treated? How the people are to live together in harmony? How are the Israelites going to submit to Yahweh in perfect obedience? And maybe that's a good place for us to start as well this morning. Is your heart willing to submit to what God says? Is your heart willing and does it want to obey God? And as we come to this chapter in particular, we're going to see how God is concerned about protecting life. 
God is the giver of life. God is the determiner of life. And God is the one who protects life. And so he gives these judgments and these rules to show how he is going to protect life and how he wants his people to reflect him by protecting the lives of those around them as well. Protecting the lives of the vulnerable. Protecting the lives of those who are hurt. And so this morning there will be two categories that come out of this chapter. And with each category we will come to see its implication on protecting life. So number one, in your bulletin you can follow along if that's helpful. Number one this morning, we must view slavery in light of our relationship to God. We must view slavery in light of our relationship to God. We have a problem as we come to these verses at the beginning because as Americans, we hear this word slavery and our grid and our lens through which we view slavery is oftentimes through American history. That slavery was wrong and there were many ways that it violated scripture. So first, we have to be able to separate what happened in American history with slavery as something different than what is being described here in God's Word. It's, it's different. And we also have to remember that we are reading this within the context of a larger book, the book of Exodus. And what has happened so far in the book of Exodus? The people of God were enslaved in Egypt. They were oppressed by the harsh taskmaster of Pharaoh. But God had freed them and released them from their slavery. He had brought them out. He had redeemed them. So we must keep that in mind as we come to these verses. The Israelites had known the hardship of slavery. They had known the difficulty in fact, if you remember, they had cried out to the Lord, and the Lord heard their cries and was compassionate upon them. And here, this slavery is fundamentally different from the slavery that they had known in Egypt. First, look that this slavery was with their own countrymen. When you buy a Hebrew slave, and I think it's implied there is that the normal way this has happened is not that someone else is selling this person, but that it is Hebrew selling himself. So when a Hebrew sells himself as a slave, it's not forever. It's temporary. It's limited amount of time. Six years. And in the seventh year, what? He shall go free. He shall go out. This slavery was not forever. And it reminds us of a pattern that God established at creation. God worked six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. And what does God tell his people? His people, he says, 
Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day, the seventh day will be a holy day, a Sabbath day for you, and on that day you shall rest. And so here, God comes to his people and he says, when a Hebrew sells himself as a slave to you to work for you, and so there's this contractual agreement that is between this person who is called a slave and the master that you will care for them as they work for you, you will provide for them, you will take care of them. That will happen only for six years, and the seventh year they will go out and be free and be released. And so what is God telling his people? He is saying, remember, you were made in the image and likeness of God. These people aren't property. They are people. And you should see my image upon them, says the Lord. And notice that they go out and, and they, they come in, they go out as they are. If he comes in single, he goes out single. If he comes in married, he goes out married. And then there is this caveat. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons and, and daughters, the wife and the children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. Think about that for a moment. How might we view that? Would we ever say, what a gift the master gives to the slave? He gives him a wife, which then brings this family of sons and daughters. That you think about even how these marriages are arranged and the contractual arrangement of these marriages, that this slave would not have any money to give to a wife. And yet, here is this master who cares for his slave. He says, I love you. Here is this wife. You have no money, but I will give her to you as a gift. Would you ever see the gift that the master might give to his slave in that regard? And then another caveat. If he's given a wife and children, then those are the masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the, play, if the slave plainly says... I love my master, my wife, and my children. I will not go out free. How amazing is this? Notice it's completely voluntary of the slave and the slave alone. It's his choice. No one's making him do this. No one's forcing him to do this. It's his choice. The slave would plainly say, and look at what he says. I love my master. I love my wife. I love my children. What kind of relationship has been built here between these people? This is a relationship that is built on love and care and concern. So that the slave says, I love my master. Look at what he has done for me. Look at how he has cared for me. I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, bring him to the door of the doorpost, and they will bore his ear with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. How amazing. How utterly amazing that this contractual agreement 
is such that the slave says, I want to make it binding forever. And I will show my devotion to you before God. We will go before God. We will make this commitment. And I will serve you forever. And I think what it's saying there, that forever is the forever of the slave's life. So if the master dies, there's a commitment to his family, to his sons, to say, I will be your families forever. I will not go out free. And then we come to the next section. First, we were talking about a male slave. Now we come to a female slave. And I think to frame our understanding of this paragraph, we need to have in our mind the context of marriage. So what is happening here is there is a father who is going to sell his daughter to this master. Why would he do that? Because he hates his daughter? No. Because he is poor. He has no dowry. He has nothing to give any man who would be a suitor for his daughter. And so he would sell his daughter in his poverty actually to provide for his daughter. To say, I'm going to give you life, I'm going to give you security that I cannot provide you. And the master then buys this daughter to help alleviate her father's poverty, to give her security and a good life as well and bring her out of her poverty. And he can do a few things. He can, one, designate her for himself. So he can say, this is going to be my wife. This is going to be my bride. And he is to treat her then as a wife. And notice, if, if she does not find favor in his eyes, it's not her fault, it's his fault. Do you see that there? If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. It's not her fault, it's his fault. And so she can be redeemed. See how the Lord is protecting this woman. He's making sure that she's taken care of. She's not going to be used and abused. The man also could buy this woman for his son. And if that is the case, then he will treat her like a daughter. Because his son would marry her and she would be his daughter. Verse 10, if he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food or clothing or her marital rights. See again how the Lord is caring for his people. And I don't think that the Lord here is saying it's okay for a man to take another wife. Everywhere, when you look in the Old Testament and someone else takes another wife, there's problems. Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, they had problems. Jacob and 
Leah and Rachel and their servants, problems. But if this happens, if this takes place, she shall still be treated as a wife. You won't diminish her food. You won't take anything away from her. You won't take away her security or what she rightly deserves. She will be taken care of. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. So again, you see how the Lord is caring for this woman. And you see through both of these how the Lord is really caring for the poor and for the down and out. He does not want to leave people in their poverty, poverty and so he provides a way so they can come out of their poverty, so they can come out of their heartache, so that they can be provided stability and security in a life that they would not otherwise have on their own. And while it is difficult in our minds to come to grips with this word, slavery, I think we need to have a reorientation to our understanding for a moment of slavery. As you think about this, who wants to be a slave? No one. Everyone wants to be free. How are we to think about slavery according to God's word? That's what really matters. How are we to think about slavery according to God's word? Not what the world says about slavery, but what God's word says about slavery. How do we think about slavery in accordance with what God's word says about it? We must come humbly. We must submit ourselves to him and to what he says. And so how do we reorient our understanding of slavery according to the Bible? We begin to understand first that everyone is a slave. Everyone is a slave. You are a slave, I am a slave, everyone is a slave, no one has escaped slavery. And this must be the most basic understanding for each person. Everyone who has ever been born is a slave, and we all start as slaves of sin. Apart from God, sin is our master. Sin is what calls the shots in our lives. Sin is what controls us. Sin is what dominates us. Sin is a harsh taskmaster, always oppressing, always beating us down. And what does it mean to be a slave of sin? Well, it means two things. It means there is some obedience that happens and there is some disobedience that happens. When sin reigns in your life, you give yourself over to obey the passions of your flesh. It's all that you are able to do. Obey your sinful flesh wants and desires. And where does that lead? It only leads to death. There is only the future of death for those who are slaves to sin. 
So as slaves of sin, you're only able to obey your sinful flesh, but there's also this disobedience that takes place, disobedience to God. While you are a slave to sin, there is no way that you are able to also be obedient to God, to obey Him. You are incapable of obeying God while you are a slave to sin. You can't do it because you are dead in your trespasses and in your sins. And so how is it that you are no longer a slave to sin? Only through being united to Jesus Christ in his death and in his resurrection are you no longer a slave to sin. When you put your faith in Christ, you are united with him in a death like his. Christians are those who have been crucified with Christ so that the body of sin will be brought to nothing. So sin would no longer dominate. So sin would no longer have control. We have died with Christ so that we are no longer enslaved to sin. But if we have died with him, we have also been set free from sin. Hallelujah. What a day of salvation. When the, sa- when the shackles of sin that enslaved us were released. When what weighed down upon our backs fell off. When all of our guilt and shame was washed away. And what are we now as Christians? We have become slaves to God. No longer slaves to sin, but slaves to God. We read this this morning. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Where does the life who is a slave to God, where does that lead? It leads to sanctification. It leads to be set apart for God. It leads to be more like Jesus. It leads you to God and to Him working in your heart in such a way that it grows your love and affection and desire for Him and ultimately your obedience to Him. Now because of what Christ has done for you, you want to obey God. You want to give yourselves as slaves to righteousness. And what is the end game of becoming slaves of God? It is not death but life, eternal life. Becoming a slave of God does not end your life. It actually gives you life and then it protects your life forever. And then we come to these words that are the words of the Christian. I love my master. I am devoted completely to him. I will live for no one else other than him. I will love no one more than him. I will be his slave forever. And how Christ, through his death, And through his resurrection has made with us a new covenant where we can be called new creations and new creatures of God. Where he gives us new hearts that work the way that they should work. And new eyes to see Jesus Christ for who he truly is and who we really are.
to where we can say, I will be his on into eternity forever and ever. Being a slave of God is no lack of life. It's abundant life. And it's the only life we want to desire to live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. Father, I pray that we are slaves of God, slaves of righteousness. And if there's anyone here who does not know Christ, if there's anyone here who is a slave to sin, that today you would show them their need for a Savior, you would show them their need for God, for you, you would show them their need to be ransomed, redeemed, reconciled, brought to God, and they would put their faith and trust in Christ and know Him. Father, I pray our hearts would be in submission to You, to what You teach us, and to what You say to us today through Your Word. And by the power of Your Holy Spirit, You might transform us. And that we might not grudgingly say we are slaves of God but that we would willingly say, lovingly say, rejoicingly say, we are slaves of God. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.